Hello and welcome to this special Montel podcast on the US election and the impact on climate change policy and energy markets. I spoke to Kertil Raknes on Saturday. Kertil is an expert on US politics and a former Norwegian state secretary. I also spoke to Trevor Sikorsky, who is head of natural gas and energy transition at Energy Aspects. I hope you enjoy the show. Joining me in my living room today is Kertil Ragnas, a USA expert, but also a chief organizer of 17th of May parties. A warm welcome to you, Kertil. Thank you so much. We're not here to talk about 17th of May, but more about what's happening across the pond in the United States. You know, you've been covering, you've been observing American politics for many, many years, Kertil. What has surprised you about this election or what's kind of different this time? I think... I wasn't that surprised, but many people were surprised that it was so competitive. A lot of people thought it was going to be like a blue wave, it was going to be like a total wipe up for the Democrats. And then it ended up like being the flip of 2016, the same states being in play towards the end with very, very thin margins, particularly in the Midwest. And then we see now that it all comes down to the, to the final count. And Biden is winning. Like It's not a discussion, it's just that the American television are, are hesitant because of the Republicans, so he's going to win this. But again, they're not going to probably not going to win the Senate, and then they're going to lose some seats in the House. Absolutely. So the U.S. comes across as a center-right country <laughs> once again, mm-hmm. and a very different country from most European countries. Absolutely, I mean we'll come into that a bit later, mm-hmm. talking about uh, yeah. you know the Democrat White House and a, and a Republican uh, Congress. But yeah. you know the outcome's quite clear; it is going to be Biden. But what what happens in the coming weeks? When will we see the final confirmation here? I think the states have until December tenth to do their final revisions on the ballots and so on. And then the Electoral College is going to meet, you know, and then the Congress has to decide on this. And then within January 20th, a new president is going to be sworn in. But this process is usually not contested in in the way we see now. So we're kind of in undefined terrain. Maybe when the final count is given now and next week, maybe if the leaders of the Congress concedes, Trump will concede as well, or he might not. And I think The thing that is different now from former election is that the Republican Party has moved rightward since the 2000 and is more doing more so now than than ever before, Mm. meaning that they are challenging democratic norms and they're also challenging the rights of minorities. So if we're going to compare to Europe, they're quite similar to the Law and Justice Party in Poland or or Fidesz in Hungary. So a lot of political scientists that have been pointing at this at some time, that this party is moving in a very, very authoritarian direction. And the speech we saw last night from Trump was like from some kind of dictatorship, but not the US, you know. Mm. So this is new terrain, even in American democracy. That's what I was going to say. I mean, uh, you know, from the outside, it looks as though it's some kind of tin pot dictator. You know, it's something that you'd see in maybe, you know, in in Latin America, in Africa, parts of Asia, rather than the Mm. United States, the home of democracy. And so I think... You know, by the reactions from Trump, uh, lawsuits, his speech on, yeah. on, on Thursday, is this democracy under threat? I think it is. And a lot of people, it's, it's not been mainstream media debate, but among political scientists, this has been debated for a long time. Whether there is like what we call democratic deconsolidation in the US, which is obviously is. And, and then you could say the question from Trump from the beginning is, how strong are the American institutions? How strong is the justice system? How strong is Congress? How strong are other institutions? And of course, the institutions would hold in the sense that I think that 
he cannot prevent Biden from becoming the president. But the question for the U.S. is, if 40% of the U.S. population thinks the election is stolen by an illegitimate president, which they cannot trust, and Donald Trump is still there to fire them up, and maybe he's running again in 2024, I think the scenario for U.S. democracy is that the Republican Party is broken. And if one of the major parties... and and, and we, could, we could draw the same lines to, to Britain, like what, what's happened to the Conservative Party in Britain? Is that a well-functioning political party? No, it's not anymore. So, so this is something new. We see that these old, very stable conservative parties who were all, often like the leaders of their countries are now kind of disappearing and something else is coming instead. So that, I mean, how will Biden govern here? I mean, how, how will the country... You know, you have a Democrat in the White House and mm. a Republican Congress. I mean, that yeah. sounds that yeah. sort of screams deadlock, yeah. really, to me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is the classical divided government scheme that they have in the U.S. So Biden is an old school Washington politician. He knows a lot of these Republicans. He's he's been working with them for ages. So his idea is that he's trying to get some of them across, and he's a moderate himself. So that is his hope that he could reach out to, to Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham and some of his old colleagues and say, hey guys, we, we need to fix this. We, we need to save our country. We have an economic crisis. We have COVID-19. So we have to do something. The problem is that the structures doesn't give Republican much incentives to cooperate. So why should they cooperate? So like Mitch McConnell, the, the problem with Mitch McConnell is not that he's evil, but he's, that he's highly rational mm, <laughs> in everything mm, he does. Mm. So he like, Supreme Court is 6-3, you know, and, and it was hypocritical of him, but he did it because he could. Mm. And, and it's the same thing with the Senate now. If they have a majority in the Senate, they, I think the Republicans, I'm sorry to say this, but I think they will just block anything. Mm. And, and it will be very hard for Biden to get things done. Mm. And if you, if you saw the speech Biden had the other night, it was Obama all over again. It's, mm. a, it's exactly mm. the same speech. We have to come together. We have to, you know, bridge our divides and, and mm. so on. Mm. But what happened to Obama? You know, he was crushed mm. in the Senate for, and, and the Congress for, for eight years. So I don't think, like, policy-wise... This is not moving very quickly. I, I mean, it's a very, very polarized country, as, yes, as it's been yes. seen, as, a, as you've mentioned as well before in, in, in your comments and, and, and yeah. in the Norwegian media. But if we can talk about foreign policy, Kjetil, yeah. what are the implications here? I mean, for example, I mean, Biden's made it very clear yeah. that he will rejoin the, the Paris Agreement. What does it mean for climate policy, for example? So an American president has limited powers internally <laughs> in the US because of the divided government. Mm. But the good news is really foreign policy mm. because like American president has enormous powers in foreign policy. So I think there you will see the biggest change. And, and Biden is going to lead the U.S. back to his arm. Of course, he's going to talk to NATO. He's going to talk to the EU in, in a like, totally different way than Trump. And he's going to try to mend these old alliances that are important for the U.S. Mm. So that's good news from a European perspective. And the second thing is, if you look at the environmental causes and so on, he's probably going to bring the U.S. back to the table with regard to international climate agreements and, and, and so on. You know, you, you sense there, is, there will be a rapprochement with, with the EU. Yeah. Uh, he will start maybe talking more to Germany again. Are those your expectations here? Obviously. And, mm. and I think another thing that's important is that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has been drained from competent people. I mean, one of the worst effects of the Trump era is actually that intelligent people don't want to work for the U.S. government. Mm. 
Mm. Hopefully, a lot of those people are going to come back. Mm. And so, so you could see a, a rapid change also in the US that the people who really know how, like the, the experienced diplomats and so on, hopefully they will come back mm. because they can work with Biden because they respect him and so on. So that, that's also good news for the US that the competent part of the US state <laughs> will come back to work. Absolutely. And how about relations with China? China is, is not any easier for Biden than it was for Trump. Just mm. Trump was criticized a lot for his take on China, but this was problematic for any US president because like Obama also struggled with China. Are we going to contain them? Are we going to, to kind of question their, on them on human rights and so on? And how are we going to, to deal with the rise of, of China? So that's kind of the, one of the unknowns, I, th I really think, is how is Biden, Biden going to deal with China? He's obviously not going to go to these massive trade wars, but the US foreign policy establishment, establishment agrees that they have to contain China. So like the Democrats are not very eager to make China a superpower. They want the US to be the superpower. Mm. So, so it's more a change of tactics and maybe change of strategy, but not a, a change of ultimate aims. Yeah, maybe so, a softer tone. So, a softer tone. So, so Iran would be the same thing. It's mm. like mm. how, I mean, it's not that the Democrats think Iran is a better regime than Republican thinks, but mm. they mm. think like uh, they believe more in international governments and they believe more in diplomacy in general to, to resolve international disputes. So maybe talking rather than bluster. Yeah. Yeah. But finally, Ketil, how, how do you see, do you think we will see a cleaner, greener US that has, a, has more of a role in the climate policy globally? I think so. And of course, I've worked a lot with environmental politics in Norway and so on. And what we see now is that this has been a big debate inside the Biden campaign, because like green issues have been moving very rapidly, like the Green New Deal and so on. And there are rumors that he's going to name John Kerry to be his, like, his climate czar. Mm. And we know this is an important thing for Democrats and also that locally in the US, this issue is moving very quickly. So even though Trump was not doing much, states in the US are doing a lot and cities in the US are doing a lot. So I think Biden is just going to catch up with those communities in the US who are already doing these things mm. and will make that much more part of, of US national policy. And also like when it comes to technology development and so on, restrictions for coal, restrictions for energy in the U.S. That's so for some U.S. in like the, for the oil industry in the U.S., mm. this was a worst case scenario, I think, because yeah. like Trump has just given the polluters whatever they wanted. So, mm. so now it's kind of the Environmental Protection Agency is going to be back in business. Yeah. So it's more through the EPA and yeah. the state level rather than the federal yeah. level. And, and I don't think people who don't know the technicalities of politics don't often appreciate that. But actually, that's how things happen true directorates and true regulations and so on. And I don't think people realize how much Trump did to like take away all kinds of regulations. Mm. I guess a lot of those are now coming back. Mm. But like I said, when it comes to doing stuff beyond some minor stuff, you need the Senate and you need, of course, they have the House. So it's complicated to change laws. But I think it maybe will help the climate not to have a climate change denier in the White House. Yeah, obviously, Biden is going to play a, a very different role. So, so if you look at from a foreign policy perspective, it's more like back to normal. Mm. You know, it's going to be more like it was before Trump came. Mm. And I think he's also going to use a lot of time to mend stuff. So I think it's going to be very interesting. Where is Biden doing his first foreign travel? <laughs> mm, okay. I, I don't think he's going to Saudi Arabia, you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think he's going, maybe, I, I, I would guess that he's actually going to Europe or to Asia. 
for his first foreign travel. We should hope so. Ketil, thank you very much for joining this uh, Montel uh, special podcast. It was an honor to be here. Joining us to talk about the energy market implications of the Joe Biden win is Trevor Sikorsky, who's head of natural gas and energy transition at NG Aspects. A warm welcome to you, Trevor. Thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure to join you on these podcasts. We're here to talk about the US election and what it means for climate policy. What does the Biden victory mean for climate policy uh, globally, really? Because, you know, obviously it must make a big difference now that we don't have a climate change denier in the White House. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I I mean, there is some some complications, as there always is with, with US politics. And really, Biden campaigned on a very kind of aggressive, I would say, climate platform. Probably the most aggressive of what he was doing was um, the pledge to decarbonize uh, U.S. power by 2035. So very aggressive looking target. They're very, very difficult, of course, to achieve. Now, his ability to get that through in some ways will depend upon being able to get those bills, of course, both through the House to rep and through the Senate. And that Senate piece still remains a bit unclear. Certainly, if it's 50-50, then you probably could get it through. If it's 51-49 for the Republicans, then it becomes a little bit more difficult. And indeed, most of the things that he's going to do probably would then need a degree of cross-party support. Last time we had a Democrat in the White House, you didn't see very much of that (laughs) cross-party support coming through. That was very difficult to get. It will be a very, very narrow Senate. And often you do get senators on both sides kind of, you know, supporting bills that play well wherever they're the senator for. So you do have to look at that as well. It's not always easy to keep your caucus together. So there's a lot of complications there in terms of will Joe Biden be able on a domestic front to be able to push through his very, very kind of aggressive Uh, let's say, energy transition platform. I would say internationally, what it probably means, and he's, you know, he has pledged to take the US back into Paris. And obviously, that's very good for the international, you know, the international forum makes that, you know, far more robust having the US inside. They had just come out of the Paris Agreement, I think it was last week or something in terms of you know, the end of the the period they needed to give him kind of notification of, of withdrawal. So he will take them back in very, very quickly. Uh, so that's good. So then for the next conference of parties, which is uh, scheduled for next November, you know, you would have the US playing a much bigger role in climate. So it's possibly too soon to talk about a, a green deal or a green wave then in the US. Yeah, I think you would have needed kind of, a you know, the blue wave, if you would like, of democratic victories to probably be more convincing or certainly more landslide type-ish for that to to really be the case. Um, The Senate was always going to be the key, right? Because you need to control both houses to really push through an aggressive set of policies. Otherwise, you know, there are checks on what you can do as as the president. And I think it will be, you know, everyone will be watching those kind of Senate runoffs in Georgia you know, so this could take a while to kind of sort out exactly what that Senate's going to fully look like for Biden's presidency. You know, if the Democrats do control that and look for far more aggressive, I would say, domestic policies on climate, then otherwise, uh, then, then if they don't control the Senate, I think, you know, things will be reined in and it will be harder to do the more aggressive and ambitious types of policies. 
How about internationally? What can you see happening with uh, US-EU relations, for example, and specifically with Ang- Angela Merkel? Well, I think, you know, certainly... You know, the EU has, has already kind of gone out and welcomed Joe Biden as president of the United States mm. this morning. So I think it's, you know, it was very, very soon and, and the election per se hasn't been fully called. And I think that was just a measure of how much relief there probably is in European capitals that you don't have four more years of the unpredictability of Donald Trump's foreign policy to deal with. I think mm. Biden will look to improve, you know, and repair relationships with a lot of the European capitals, particularly in Germany. Now, I think there is a question, you know, one of the outstanding sore points between the countries is the Nord Stream 2 pipeline and the sanctions that were going through there. That bill is, the, the next round of sanctions is in a bill. Uh, at the moment, it has gone through both of the houses in Congress, so both bill, you know, both the Senate and the House have provided bills and passed bills that have a measure of uh, renewed sanctions on Nord Stream 2 in it. Uh, the president hadn't signed it off yet, which um, was you know, a very Trump-type thing in the sense that it contained provisions to rename you know, any federal and defense um, installations named after Confederate, you know, Confederate figures to be renamed and Trump didn't like that. So he refused to sign it off before the election. This is always Mm. called the kind of must pass bills, i.e. it's defense spending. It has to be done every year. So the expectation is it will be done in that so-called lame duck period, you know, which basically is from now until the inauguration in January of Joe Biden. So that probably will be passed. Now, the big question is, Would Joe Biden then, you know, it it seems unlikely that one of the first things he will do as president is go in and be seen to be easy on Russia. So, you know, he probably will will live with it. He probably doesn't like it. Um, Maybe in time he'll soften that. Maybe it'll be a question of saying that the United States will not seek to enforce those sanctions. But I'm not sure if he's going to remove them from that bill even as he seeks to repair uh, what damage was caused by the Trump administration in the European capitals. So those companies involved in building Nord Stream 2 can expect to see sanctions happen within the next sort of three to six months? Well, I would say the sanctions that are, I mean, there's already sanctions in place, but those further round Mm. of sanctions, which are a bit more aggressive, will be signed off probably before the end of this year. It would have to be, Mm. you know, you would have Mm. to put that as the expectation of what's going to happen. Of course, it seems that Gazprom is trying to arrange a pure Russian way of completing that pipeline, i.e. a Russian pipe layer it's got there, probably trying to get a a flotilla of Russian flagged ships uh, that can supply it with pipe and get that started. But it's been a very slow process of getting pipeline restarted since it was basically abandoned in December of last year. What about US gas, Mm -hmm. Trevor? I mean, uh, can we expect growing LNG exports under Biden or will that slow down? What what are your expectations here? Well, I think, you know, in terms of the policies that we expect to see, we would expect to see better EPA regulation probably of upstream oil and gas. So, you know, certainly there will be pressure to reduce flaring, uh, reduce methane losses, those types of things will be more heavily regulated. There will also be regulation of fracking on federal grounds. You know, it's what we saw in the Obama administration, relaxed by the Trump administration, likely to be reimposed by the Biden administration. 
So, but that's not that big a deal. I mean, not that much fracking happens on federal lands, so it's not, you know, it doesn't really change the game on supply. Now, I think in terms of LNG exports, I would actually think that those are probably not going to be hindered that much. So as long as, you know, you get a clean, you know, you get a cleaner kind of footprint on the, you know, the U.S. domestic part of that piece, I, the upstream, as long as that gets cleaned up, I think even this, you you know, the new U.S. administration will be very relaxed about, you know, exporting lots of gas. You know, in some ways, it's very similar, uh, you know, to a country very close to your heart, which, of course, is Norway, you know, and uh, very green in some ways, but also a very, very big hydrocarbon exporter. And I would expect the U.S. would, would be similar in, in approach in the sense that they'll be very, very happy to export energy under the Biden administration. And finally, Trevor, what about carbon pricing? Mm -hmm. What's the outlook for that in the US under a Biden administration? I mean, you know, you would say carbon pricing should be an obvious one, but it didn't feature in the Biden campaign at all. And and I think, you know, uh, last time around when, you know, Obama was, uh, you know, was going for his first term, it almost felt like there was cross-party support for cap and trade. You had McCain uh, as the Republican candidate. A lot happened, of course, during the Obama administration, and Republicans kind of turned against almost anything that Obama wanted to do, and that included cap and trade. And they haven't kind of backed away from that opposition to cap and trade. And I think without having really campaigned for it, it would be difficult to impose it as a policy uh, at a federal level. So it, it feels like a federal cap and trade will be difficult at least in you know the, the next four years just because it didn't really feature at all in any of the campaigns and it was it really didn't get a mention or a look in, and it, it would be considered a very very big policy biden did say you know he did kind of put out that he supports kind of the polluter pays type principle you know and and that maybe was a nod towards something like carbon pricing but it's not our expectation to see, you know, a big bill on federal cap and trade come in. Maybe if you had like independent senators raise it, and particularly if that was on the Republican side, he certainly wouldn't stand in its way and he'd probably be happy to see it. But I think, you know, having the president originate that and push for the houses to develop those bills uh, would be difficult. You'd need to see cross party support. I'm not sure there's enough Republican support for it to get it through. Trevor, thank you very much for joining this special Montel podcast on the US election. My pleasure. Thank you, Richard. That's about all from the Montel special podcast. Many thanks to Kertil and Trevor for their insights into this momentous election. Please remember to tune in to the Montel Weekly podcast every Friday. And remember to keep up to date with all that's happening in the energy markets on Montel News. You can subscribe to the weekly podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And please leave a review if you can. Thank you and goodbye.